This is Blood Bank, a podcast where hospital workers share a story from an experience in medicine that has stayed with them, and then they tell us why. I'm Amanda Rubano, and I'm a medical student at the University of Rochester. Today, we'll hear a story from Dr. Erica Ramsdale about an incarcerated patient named Debbie, who reminds us about the importance of empathy and standing up for what's right. This is a story about the systemic abuse and neglect in the prison system. Dr. Ramsdale is a dual-trained geriatrician and oncologist who takes care of older adults with gastrointestinal cancer. So this is a couple things about the story before I start. And the first is that I will be using the patient's real name. Uh, Her story is out there in the public and articles and, and court records and things like that. Um, so her story is, is public, but also she asked me to keep telling her story. So this is a thank you for the opportunity to be able to do that. So the story begins seven or eight years ago. I was a brand new oncologist just out of fellowship. So I was seeing patients independently for the first time, which is pretty terrifying. And Debbie was one of the first patients I met and started to treat, and Debbie had a new diagnosis of rectal cancer. What made Debbie different from all the other patients I'd seen before is that at the time she was incarcerated. So when I met her, she's in the orange jumpsuit, she's shackled at her wrists and ankles, she's flanked by these two big burly guards, they were almost always male, the ones that accompanied her, and it's kind of an intimidating scenario, you know, I'm a new physician, or not a new physician, a new oncologist, um, making decisions on my own, meeting a patient in a situation that I just was very unfamiliar with and with these, you know, kind of intimidating guards in the room. And so one of the first things that struck me was that the guards were always there uh, throughout her, the course of her treatment. They would not leave the room. She obviously has a tumor in a pretty sensitive location, but she had no privacy and no confidentiality. I still to this day don't actually know what the rights of the incarcerated are regarding privacy, you know, when they're seeing their doctor. Nobody can tell me the answer to that. Lawyers, judges, you know, prison officials. But that was one of the first things that really struck me as odd because I'm I'm talking with guards in the room and and talking about these really sensitive issues. But, you know, regardless, uh, I made a a recommendation. We did a very standard treatment plan for her, which was uh, chemotherapy and radiation, which was daily for uh, five and a half or six weeks is the typical course. So she would actually have to be transported from the prison daily. And for, you know, this, this happened okay. She got to all of her appointments. She showed up to every appointment. I don't recall that she missed any. But the next thing I started to notice was that she was showing up in pretty significant pain all the time. You know, this cancer is very painful. It can be very locally destructive. And so for a lot of people, it's quite painful. And then you add on radiation, uh, which is basically inducing a sunburn on the inside. You can imagine that can get pretty painful for folks. So we really have to rely on supportive care medications to get people through it. It's usually pain medication, usually opioids. You know, I kept writing for her her supportive care medications, and she was just not, she was still coming in in tremendous pain. And at the time, I didn't know why she was in prison or, you know, what her story had been. But I was like, well, surely they're giving her her pain medications. Is she, you know, and I admit I had this, like, you know, kind of thoughts or questions like, well, is she telling me the truth? Is, Is this a, 
drug-seeking behavior and things that in hindsight I'm pretty kind of ashamed of thinking, but I just couldn't figure out why she was coming in so much pain all the time. And she just kept insisting that they aren't giving the medications like you prescribe them. They just aren't giving them to me. So I, you know, started calling the prison and calling, you know, the clinic and making, oh yeah, we're giving them to her, we're giving them to her. I was writing out orders in addition, you know, like sending them with her in addition to sending orders, you know, multiple ways to the prison. But she just kept coming in and saying, they're not giving me medications. And I really couldn't figure this out. But um, ultimately, we got her through the treatment. And unfortunately, she did not respond to the treatment, which is uncommon. Most people respond in, in terms of tumor shrinkage, but her tumor did not shrink, and in fact, it continued to grow. Uh, it didn't spread through her body, but it continued to grow down in the pelvis and really caused some really destructive things. So obviously we needed, you know, this wasn't something we could take out surgically without shrinking it more, at the very least. And so I set up an appointment to talk with her about chemotherapy, and she just kept missing appointments. You know, she wouldn't show up. So we kept calling the prison and setting up new appointments and trying to figure this out, and she just wouldn't show up. And I started getting agitated. I called and said, this is really important. Like, you can't, you have to bring her. Like, what's going on? And I was told, well, we can cancel transportation for any reason at all, you know. So we recommend, you know, we have a facility that's nearer to us that has a locked unit that's used to taking care of the incarcerated population. Why don't we transfer her care there? And I said, I don't like that idea, but if it's going to get her seen and, and you're going to be able to reliably transport her, I, I'll sign off on that. But I'd like to see her before she gets transferred. So we set up an appointment. Of course, she never showed up. And they told me she had an appointment with a physician at this other facility, and we sent records forward, and I kind of waited to see who I needed to sign out to as far as the plan. It turns out she never showed up there either. I think it was five months later. I get a very angry call from a physician at this other facility. She had finally made it over there. She showed up looking very sick, um, in a lot of pain, and the doctor was infuriated with me because she's like, "I, you know, you sent her to me with no records and and no handoff." And I said, "Oh, well, wait a minute. I I did send records, but it's been months now. I I just assumed she was in treatment with you. I called your facility and sent over the records and called the prison and." And I was, I was horrified and actually, you know, pretty ashamed. Like, what should I have done to ensure that this went, went better? I felt like I abandoned her or let her down. Um, but I hung up with this physician, and I immediately called the prison, and I was feeling really ferociously angry at this point. I don't recall what I said. I do recall the tone with which I said it. Um, I talked to the warden, and I said, you need to get her here now. I, I, was, I was just... I can't even describe how angry I was. Turns out that despite calls and continued pressure, as far as I could could manage, um, it was three months later that she finally showed back up to me. So this had been about eight months, as best I recall, since she'd gotten any treatment for her cancer, which was an aggressive cancer. She showed up to my office um, the next time, septic. So what she told me was that she'd not been given any pain medication, um, that she had developed fevers and signs of infection of the wound that was being caused by the cancer. And they had not offered her antibiotics. What she told me was that the physician wanted to incise and drain it, actually cut it open as if it were an abscess. It wasn't an abscess, it was a cancer. Debbie appropriately said 
my oncologist would not want that. She said not to do, you know, that's not the appropriate therapy. And she advocated for herself. She said, I need antibiotics. At least this is what she's telling me. And what she told me, the doctor said was, well, if you're not going to let me drain it, I'm, I'm not going to do anything else. And she got no antibiotics, clearly insufficient symptom care. And so she showed up to me with really fast heart rate. You know, she's sweating. She's got a fever. And the tumor has massively progressed. I was just shocked that this could happen in this country in a, in a situation where she was being watched over. And she was being watched over ostensibly by medical personnel in the prison and, and guards and other people. I was shocked that this had progressed to this level with really nobody intervening. So I did what I, did, I would do for anybody in that situation. I admitted her to the hospital. And as soon as I had gotten her admitted, my next call was, well, actually what happened was I was Googling online to find the warden's number, to find the prison's number, because I'm sure I was going to call and yell at them again and, and let them know what was happening. And all these news articles started popping up. So a civil lawsuit had been filed uh, against this prison for neglect, basically. You know, there were all these patients in a class action lawsuit saying that their medical care had been compromised or neglected completely. Uh, and I saw this and I was like, oh my God, you know, Debbie's one of these. I don't know if she's involved in this, you know, what's going on. She had never mentioned it. The next article I think I saw, or maybe a few down, I was kind of scrolling down, was that there were also allegations of sexual abuse in the prisons by the guards. And, you know, then all that came back to me like, I've never been able to ask her if she feels safe because these guards will not leave the room. I was never able to ask her, you know, whether she was a victim of any of this. And I still don't know to this day because I never got to talk with her, you know, without guards present. Um, so I saw this and my mouth is kind of hanging open and, I'm, I, and I was like, what do I do next? So I uh, called the ethics service for the hospital and I said, here's the situation. I'm highly suspicious for medical neglect. You know, I have been. I found these articles. You know, there's a class action lawsuit and they put me in touch with the um, attorney who confirmed that records had been requested for, you know, patients, including Debbie. And they actually did a really interesting thing was that they told me to reach out to the attorney who was heading the lawsuit, which is kind of a remarkable step for a for a hospital to take to say, reach out to this law firm who's who's pursuing this lawsuit. So I did. I picked up the phone and I called the attorney. And I said, this is what's happening. I need your help. I need to know what to do. Brenda is her name, Castaneda. She's still, I believe, with the, the same firm, you know, sort of pursuing this, this line of work. Uh, but she sort of really immediately sort of started jumping into action and told me what to do. She's like, we're going to write a letter. We're going to make demands and that they have to meet. Uh, will you help me draft a letter to the prison? And we're going to put it in writing, like exactly what they need to agree to. And she said, you just need to keep her in the hospital and not send her back until they agree to this and until we feel certain that they're going to do it. So even long after she was ready to go home, I kept her there. I just said she's, I kept her as an unsafe discharge. I said she's not safe to go back, quote unquote, home or, you know, where she's staying. And um, fortunately, the hospital backed me up on that and let me do this. Uh, but I just kept her and kept her and kept her. And I felt really bad. You know, there was, I would go and visit her and, you know, she kind of told me, well, at least at the prison, I can go outside sometimes. And in the hospital, uh, you know, she's just kind of confined to this room. So I think, you know, in some ways she was a little, you know, frustrated. And I said, look, I'm, I, I don't want to keep you in a small room, but I'm just really worried about sending you back. And I was pretty heavily pregnant at the time with my first child. I was heading on like 
five or six months pregnant at the time, so I was starting to get the, the bump, and she um, she had been kind of a stoic patient, kind of hard for me to read up until that time, but um, we really bonded over that. She had lost a son. You know, she also had some grandkids. She knew I was having a boy, so she really, we really bonded over that, and she would, like, feel my stomach. You know, it was kind of good rapport that eventually grew between us in that four weeks that I was kind of a little bit keeping her in in the hospital um, and out of the prison. And finally, the prison gave us enough indications that they were taking us seriously that we discharged her back. And then, you know, I got asked to give a deposition in the, the lawsuit. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, you know, but they set the trial date and it was the day I was due, I think, or, or right around that time. And so they actually video deposed me um, when I was about nine months. I was just coming on eight or nine months pregnant. So I come in like huge and angry and they sent down a lawyer to, to cross-examine me. And uh, he was really, I, I thought my pregnant belly would sort of protect me from someone being you know, aggressive uh, in my in questioning, but it did not stop him at all. But I, you know what, I was furious and pregnant and hot. And so I, you know, I was probably equally assertive in return. So I did that deposition. And then the prison, which was being represented by the state, because it was a state facility, um, they settled, basically, they agreed uh, to some of the um, requests of the civil lawsuit, which was not for money, it was for injunctive relief, which I think basically means they want the prison to stop doing this. That's what the, the patients and, the, and the, the incarcerated people were seeking. They were not seeking damages or any monetary anything. They were just seeking for this to stop. And so the prison finally sort of settled and said, you know, we don't want to go to trial. We'll sort of enter mediation or whatever the process is. And so I was actually, I think, the only person that really testified. So my testimony was seen because I had already been deposed, but there was not a trial and they, they basically found really widespread dysfunction, abuses, neglect. I mean, the stories are horrifying if you go look at them, you know, even now, years later. Um, so they appointed a monitor. They did all kinds of, of things. Ultimately, unfortunately, the problems are still happening. That aren't They're not only happening there, they're happening in a lot of places where these kind of for-profit companies are are in the prisons and sort of trying to minimize cost, you know, in terms of providing health care, things like that. So with Debbie, we gave her some, some, some chemo. It, unfortunately, she just, by that time, her body was really worn out. She was just getting to the point where she was not resilient enough to tolerate more. They still were not, despite all these letters and communication and threats from, from the lawyer, um, I was still not convinced they were um, giving her adequate pain relief. So eventually, um, Brenda and I um, kind of joined forces again and petitioned for clemency, which I was told was a really rare thing to be granted. But we um, petitioned the state for clemency, and she was granted clemency. Uh, and she went home on hospice with her sister and uh, died, I think, um, ultimately just shortly, either shortly before or shortly after I gave birth um, to Milo, my son. So that was a regret. I, I did end up sharing pictures and, sh- you know, connecting with her sister afterwards, but uh, I never got to show her, let her see the baby that we had talked so much about and and bonded over and, and hear her stories. So, you know, the good thing is she, she didn't have to stay in the prison at the end of her life. Um, that was a good thing, but uh, she suffered so much. And although I don't remember the details of her diagnosis very well, I... I remember being really certain that being incarcerated delayed her diagnosis, and it certainly substantially and horrifically delayed her care, uh, because when she came to me, this was a potentially curable 
cancer. So that's that's kind of the story. I um, I didn't know what to do with all the emotions after you know I was obviously very angry, kind of ashamed at our, our system and and my sort of complicity in it or how I how I could have done done more or how I didn't realize that this was going on. I ended up doing some, you know, working with some lobbyists and actually going to DC and, and sort of talking to politicians about this and telling Debbie's story. And, um, you know, I saw some positive changes from that. But like I said, these, these situations are still widespread and, you know, going on all over the place. And I don't think people realize that. You know, when you go into prison, no matter what you've done, you deserve, in my mind, to be treated with dignity. You don't deserve to get a death sentence. I know from our former conversation, you had told me that under the Eighth Amendment, incarcerated people have protected access to health care, and they're some of the only people in this country that have that guaranteed. Yeah, which is supposed to prevent cruel and unusual punishment, and I I can't call this anything but cruel and unusual punishment. So how we as a society allow this to keep happening is just, you know, we're violating our own constitutional commitments. So that's the story. I think the question that immediately jumps to my mind is if you were to be presented with Debbie today, um, constrained by her shackles and flanked by those same guards, what would be your response to her? You know, I think I would make fewer assumptions about her and, you know, where she's coming from and more assumptions about the system in which she's, you know, embedded. Um, Certainly, I'd be a lot more skeptical that they were going to provide adequate care. And I I hate to say that, but I'd have a really low threshold for really digging in pretty deep if I thought anything was going amiss or, or something was being missed at the prison. I think I probably worry, wouldn't worry so much about how I was coming across. I would just, you know, jump in and be a firm advocate and not worry so much about who I was offending. It seems like you did your damnedest for Debbie and for this circumstance, nine months pregnant, giving a deposition. What power did you feel like you had? To be honest, um, one of the feelings that I had after this that really made me think a lot was um, disappointment in my colleagues. And that's hard to say because I I valued them so much, but she saw a lot of doctors. I remember kind of going around to them because I was uncertain how to act and saying, don't you, you know, this is worrisome. We should, shouldn't we do, we should do something, right? Shouldn't we do something? And there was just kind of a little bit of a collective shrug. It, it, It didn't impact their curiosity or or it didn't rise to the level where they felt like they had to act. You know, I think what I learned is that um, doctors are actually really well positioned to be a really strong advocate for their patients and to change things. I think you have to try. I think you have to advocate if you see something that's wrong and you feel strongly about it and you got to kind of be brave and go for broke, I guess. Yeah, showing up matters. You know, you don't necessarily know if you're going to win the war, but you have to show up if you're going to try. Yeah. Um, but, you you know, you as a physician or um, what was it? even as a human, you have a responsibility beyond the person that's sitting in front of you to sort of call out problems if you see them and try to solve them as best you can. And I think I've gotten a lot less concerned with whether I, you know, it's the outcome that I want or whether I have an impact I just need to act. I just need to, to, to do something. And I don't need to do everything. I can't overextend. But 
um, we do have responsibilities that are interlocking and, and that aren't just related to who's sitting right in front of us. Our responsibility doesn't end there. And that's a big responsibility, but we have a big voice and we, we can use it. Well, it's an optimistic end to an otherwise very grave and sad story. <laughs> it is, isn't it? But, um, you know, I, I do remain an optimist. Uh, you know, I read this once and it's really stuck with me that uh, I'm also a pretty angry person a lot sure, of the time. Sure, great. Give it to me. <laughs> I'm here for it all. <laughs> but uh, anger is optimism. You know, you don't, you don't get angry about things typically that you don't think you can change or that you don't see that opening. Um, so that's kind of stuck with me, and oh, I can kind of make I can I can relate to my anger in a little bit more healthy direction. I do identify myself as an optimist, and I I do think we have a lot of agency. Well, I think this is a great place to stop. I thank you tremendously for your time and for Debbie's story. I know that she wanted it to be heard, and I think that you did a just job. I hope so too, and thank you for the opportunity to, to tell her story. Absolutely. My name is Amanda Rupano, and you're listening to Blood Bank.